Good morning, good morning, welcome, welcome, welcome. What a sweet time, huh? Oh, that was great. The team just sounded wonderful this morning. And, and uh, if you're visiting the Bible Church for the very first time, really glad to have you with us today. My name is Tim. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And, and my privilege is to help us to worship the Lord through the study of his word together. Are you ready to do that with me? All right, well, let's, let's get right to it. I'll ask you to grab your Bible or your phone, maybe your iPad, and let's head for the, the third book or the third chapter of the first book of the Bible, which we be Genesis chapter 3 this morning. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll be glad to share a copy with God's Word with you. And in your bulletin, there is a little note page, looks like this, as well as a little booklet that looks like this. If you would grab both of those, that would be great. And if you haven't silenced your cell phone, uh, would you please do that as well? That would be, we'd all be grateful for that thought. And church family, last time, if you were with us, and especially if you weren't with us last Sunday morning, we introduced a four-part series that is taking us through the Christmas season. It's called The Story. At Christmas, everybody is dialed into the Christmas story when God in the person of Jesus entered the world at Bethlehem through a miraculous virgin birth. And and we love that story. We love to hear it. We love to tell it. And we certainly love to celebrate it. But the Christmas story is not a standalone story. It is actually part of a much, much larger story, what, what we could call the story. In fact, the Christmas story doesn't even make sense unless it is set into and understood as part of this much larger story. God is the author of the story, and he has put the story within the covers of our Bibles. God's plan and his plot line of the Bible stretches from Genesis, the first book, all the way to the Revelation, the last book of the Bible, and all 66 books that make up the Bible are woven together into this one storyline. Now, if you are a parent uh, of small children or a grandparent of small children, then you probably are familiar with this book. How many of you know this or recognize the cover of this? Yeah, yeah, you know this one. It's the Jesus Storybook Bible, and it's just a great resource. If you've never tapped into it, you might want to think about that as a a great gift, uh, gift at Christmas. But I'd like to read to you a portion of the introduction of this children's Bible. Here's what it says. The Bible isn't mainly about you and what you are doing. It's about God and what he has done. The Bible is most of all a true story. There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his people and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell his story, and at the center of the story, well, there is Jesus. And every story in the Bible whispers his name. I love that as an introduction to that, little, that children's Bible. Now, Pastor Tim Keller, writing to a slightly older audience, says essentially the same thing. Many people think of the Bible as a book of moral teachings with stories sprinkled throughout to illustrate the teachings. But it's much better than that. The Bible is a single story with teachings that's sprinkled throughout to illustrate the story. 
And that's really what we're talking about here. And so in the month of December, we're telling the story of which Christmas is but one part. Again, the Christmas story makes no sense without the story. And the story as God has written it, as we noted last time, can be told by way of a by four major movements, or we could even call them chapters in keeping with the analogy of the story. And this little booklet that you have in your bulletin this morning presents these four chapters in a clear and a compelling way that, that we hope you would be able to share with a friend or maybe a family member who doesn't yet know the story or have a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus. And so we supplied this resource to you last Sunday. We put it in your bulletin again this week so that you can, I don't know else to say it, so that you can get rid of it, so that you can give it away and not keep it um, and share the story with somebody who doesn't know the story. So what are the four chapters of God's story? Well, the first chapter is creation. If you were to thumb through this little booklet that you have, the second chapter is the fall. Chapter three is the rescue and chapter four is restoration. These four words basically are the whole Bible. Creation addresses the question that everybody asks sooner or later. How did it all begin? How did it how did all this happen? How am I here? Why am why am I here? The fall then reveals what went wrong because clearly something has gone wrong. The rescue takes up the cry of many, which is, is there any hope in this crazy world that that I'm a part of? And then restoration boldly answers the question, what will the future hold for my world and what does it hold for me? This is the story. Now, last time... We stepped into the first chapter, if you were with us, creation, Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And it all begins with God who in the beginning, what, church family? He created the heavens and the earth. That's the very first verse of the Bible, exercising infinite power and intelligence and creativity and wisdom simply because he wanted to do it. God, with just a word, spoke all that has ever been, all that is or ever will be into being. Everything, it it all comes from him, and we learned last time, it is all for him. Now, the pinnacle of God's creative expression we discovered in Genesis 1 and 2 is who? It's us, right? I heard somebody say it. It's us. It's you and me, right? We're all agreed with that? Okay, great, great. I just check in to see we're all here. Yeah, yeah, God saved his best creative power and expression for last as he created mankind, man and woman. He created them unique and and different from all other living things, giving them in verses 26 and 27 of Genesis chapter 1, giving them his own image. He gave aspects of his person, aspects of his nature to man and to woman. He didn't give those to any other part of his creation. He gave them a moral, a a rational, an emotional, and a spiritual peace 
of himself. And that sets us apart from every other part of creation. No other part of creation can say, I'm an image bearer of the creator God. But you can say that today because that's how God made you. That's how he made me. Story about a little girl who once asked her mom, where did people come from, mom? And mom says, well, God made man, and then God made a woman, and, and they had children. And the little girl then went into the living room, and she asked her dad the same question. Where did people come from? And he said, well, many years ago, there were monkeys, and the humans evolved from the monkeys. She went back to her mom, and she says, Mom, I'm confused. You said God created Dad said we come from monkeys. Who's right? And mom said, honey, it's very simple. I explained my side of the family, and he explained his. (laughs) Brothers and sisters, we, (laughs) we are not evolutionary cousins of the monkey, are we? No, not according to the Bible, we're not. Mankind was made in the image of God, for a ver- from the very beginning, and for a very specific purpose. God made us this way so that he could have a relationship with us that is unique, that is, that is personal, and it is real. Infinite God wanted to love, and he wanted to relate to a unique creature that bore the imprint of himself and could relate to him and love him back. The creation God had made was perfect, we learned last time just as he had designed it to be. Beauty, harmony, intimacy, especially between himself and these image bearers. It was really heaven on earth in many ways. And Genesis chapter 1, verse 31 captures the reality of it all when it says, and God saw all that he had made, and it was what, church? It was very good. This is how the story begins. But what is described in the beginning of the story does not fit with what you and I know of this world and this creation that we're a part of. And that's because, sadly, the story has a second chapter. And the second chapter is called The Fall. Now, I had mentioned to you last time that this little booklet that you have also has a complimentary DVD that you can share with a friend. And I'd like to just share a little bit of that DVD with you now. So let's watch together. There is only one story that answers life's most essential questions and gives a lasting sense of purpose and meaning. It's the story that inspires all other stories. It's the true story that defines every one of us. This is that story. How did it all begin? Like all stories, this one begins in the beginning with the author, who is God. He spoke everything into being. With a word, galaxies appeared with stars and planets. Earth was designed for life to flourish. Everything God made was gloriously good and breathtakingly perfect. The highlight of God's creation was the first man and woman, Adam and Eve. God entrusted everything he created to his beloved children, giving just one rule. They were not to eat fruit from a specific tree. They lived in loving obedience, 
worshiping God as their Heavenly Father and enjoying perfect harmony with creation, each other, and God. Considering our world today, its obvious perfect peace didn't last. Turmoil, war, sickness, troubles. We each have our share. What went wrong? It started when a fallen angel named Satan grew jealous of God and determined to ruin the perfection of creation. Satan took the form of a serpent and enticed Adam and Eve to question God's goodness and rebel against his one rule. In disobedience, they ate the fruit and peace unraveled, ushering in sin and death, which still plagues us today. If we are honest, we are very much like Adam and Eve. We all rebel against our Heavenly Father, making our hearts heavy with fear, guilt, and shame. Our bodies are weary with sickness, disease, and death. Earth is afflicted with storms, calamities, and disasters. Even worse, sin has separated us from God, causing a permanent divide, a miserable separation called hell. The fallout of sin has been catastrophic. It's inescapable with no way to fix it. We'll stop right there. The story continues, but we're going to stop right there for this morning. Creation, so very good. And the fall, so very devastating. Church family, in order to really understand Christmas, we must first know these two parts of the story. The fall is given to us in all of its sad detail in the third chapter of Genesis, where your Bible is now open. So allow me to read for us the first six verses of chapter 3, and you can follow along in your Bible if you would do that, please. Here's how it reads. The fall, beginning in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. We'll stop right there for the moment. On your note page, this part of the story begins by introducing us to a new character that we've not seen before. In verse 1, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent. Church family, who is the serpent? Sure, it is Satan. There is no effort made to to give us any background to his being as he comes onto the scene here in the garden. He's just presented to us. But that's okay because we have the rest of the Bible to fill in some of the blanks and some of the questions that we would ask about him. We know that Satan is a created being. 
that he's part of the angelic creation originally. He was at the top of that part of the angelic realm, being the most beautiful, the most powerful angel, and occupying the highest position among the angels. He was the archangel. And that became his undoing at some point, because though we're not told the time frame, pride entered his heart, and he determined that he was going to become like God. He would subvert God's authority. He would take God's place. The, the creature would become God in his mind. Scripture would seem to indicate that he entices perhaps a third of the angelic realm to side with him. And so he becomes the enemy of God, seeking with all of his being to take for himself anything that God loves or anything that God values. And since God loves the image bearers that he has placed into the perfection of his world in the garden, Satan makes his mission to deceive mankind into following him, destroying, if possible, any who will not give him their allegiance. He'll do whatever he can to displace God's rule over mankind. And so being now the most powerful but sin-infected archangel and being a supernatural spirit being, Satan in chapter 3 and verse 1 is able to possess and indwell the body of one of the creatures in the garden, the serpent. At least that's the name given to this creature. Now, some have suggested that the serpent in the garden was the most beautiful of all of the creatures that God had made. Now, this may be so, although the text does not give that to us, but 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 14, does tell us that Satan hides himself in beauty. The Apostle Paul writes it this way, saying, Satan disguises himself as a what? An angel of light. So whether it was the most beautiful creature or not, we don't know. But one thing is certain, this, that the serpent was not anything like the, the, the slithering, frightening, repulsive snake that we often see presented in art. When Eve saw this creature, she didn't run screaming through the garden, calling out for Adam to bring a shovel and cut off its head. That's not the moment. There was something about the serpent that, that drew her in, disarmed her, even made her feel safe. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that God had made. Satan does not come to us in frightening ways, but in ways that draw us in and get our attention. Would you agree with that? Yeah. Satan has been, a, has, has, has been a caricature by writers and artists and actors and comedians. They, they paint him out as being some kind of a silly, harmless being. And so today, most people, if they believe that Satan exists, they really don't take him seriously. But we need to know that as the Bible presents him, he is the enemy of God and he's the enemy of anyone who loves God, making him an enemy of you, right? Yeah. Satan means, the word means adversary. Devil means slanderer, something that Satan does all the time to God. He, 
He fights against him and he slanders him. He's called the destroyer in Revelation 9. He's called the dragon in Revelation 12. He's the roaring lion who prowls around looking to devour in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. He's called the prince of this world in John 12. He's the evil one in Matthew 13. Paul calls Satan the, the god of this age, the ruler of this world system, the leader of the demonic forces in the heavenly realm. But it is Jesus who puts the defining point on just who Satan really is when he says this in John chapter 8, verse 44. Here's what Jesus says. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. And Satan is going to deliver now a command performance in keeping with this description from Jesus as we consider his strategy there on your note page, the strategy of the fall. Now, the first thing this serpent, this creature, which has been perverted and indwelt by the spirit of Satan does is he opens up a conversation with Eve. He catches her when she apparently is alone. Adam is not a part of this dialogue it is the serpent and Eve alone together. And this is strategic since we are always more vulnerable when we are alone. Now, he knows that he cannot make Eve sin. Satan is a powerful being, but he's not that powerful. He cannot make anyone sin. We all sin, brothers and sisters. Why? Because we choose to. We choose to sin. The New Testament writer James puts it this way in James 1, 14 and 15. But each one is tempted when by his own evil desire he is dragged away and enticed. And then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. So Satan can't make Eve sin against God, but he can entice her. To make a choice. And the way he will do that is to tempt her to doubt God. To doubt God's goodness. To doubt the, 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 whether God will tell the truth all the time or not. And to doubt what his motives really are in terms of his relationship with her. And he says to the woman, did God actually say? You shall not eat of any tree in the garden. What's Satan up to here in this moment? What's he up to? He's, well, he is, he's about to lie for sure. He's essentially saying to Eve, hey, is it true that God has restricted from you the delights of this place, this garden? Now, that doesn't sound like one who is truly good and kind. There must be some mistake. Did God actually say you can't eat from any of the trees in the garden? So Eve answers and says, oh, no, no, we can eat from all of the trees in this garden, but one, the one that's in the middle of the garden, that's off limits to us. Now, church family, I was just curious enough to go online and ask the question, how many trees are there on planet Earth? 
Now, there are actually people who figure out this kind of stuff. So, so it is estimated, no joke, it is estimated that there are roughly 3 trillion trees on the earth. Now, that's a three with 12 zeros behind it. To make it more understandable, that's about 400 trees for every single person on the planet right now. So Eve says, there are three trillion trees that we can eat from. God is incredibly generous. But now that you mention it, there is that one tree in the middle of the garden. And this is right where Satan wants Eve's thoughts to go. Not to the three trillion trees that she can eat from, but the one tree that she can't. Why would a good God withhold that one tree from you? That's the question he puts in front of her. We will die if we eat from that tree, God said, at which point Satan does what our friend back here just said. He lies. Just exactly what Jesus said he would do, John 8, 44. He lies. You will not surely die, he says. Now, church family, there has, at least in my opinion, never, ever been a more destructive, destroying, deadly lie uttered by any creature than this lie. You will not surely die. It is the very opposite of what God had said in Genesis 2 verse 17 to Adam. Satan is tempting Eve to doubt whether God can really be trusted to tell the truth. He said you'll die, but is that what will really happen, Eve? And so Satan invites her to entertain for the very first time in her existence to entertain the possibility that God is not being truthful with her. And then to seal the deal, Satan casts another doubt into Eve's thinking. And this one has to do with God's motive for keeping that one tree from her. Verse 5, for God knows that when you eat of that tree, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God doesn't have your best interest in mind, Eve. He has his own interest in mind. You should be the one deciding what is right and wrong for yourself. God has a hidden agenda designed to keep you in your place and to keep him above you. He knows if you eat of that tree, you're going to be like him. Motive. Satan knew that the moment that Eve doubted the goodness of God and the trustworthiness of God and the motives that defined her relationship with God, he knew that he had her. He deceived her to thinking his way, even as she thought that she was coming to all of these conclusions on her own. And really, that's the truest test of a powerful and effective temptation. You don't even know you're being taken. And that's Eve. She doesn't know that it is Satan who has, has put all of this into her thoughts. Eve just thinks, yes, God is generous. But, you know, there's that one tree. 
And yes, he said death resides within that tree, but is that true? And yes, he is my creator, but why can't I decide good and evil for myself? And for thousands of years, church family, the serpent, Satan, the enemy of God has repeated this very same strategy. He tries it on you all the time, does he not? To, to doubt God's goodness or his, his word or maybe his motives. This is how he tempts you. This is how he tempts me. So now the trap, set and baited, leads to the decision there on your note page. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So Eve makes a decision, believing that what the serpent is telling her is true. It is right. She somehow has misunderstood God. And the serpent has enlightened her. It's not so much, church family, an overt act of rebellion against God on Eve's part. It's more of a seduction. It's more of a deception that leads her to believe that she's doing a right and reasonable thing. We can almost hear her internal conversation in verse 6. The fruit on the tree is edible. You can eat it. And it looks like it would be really, really good. It looks really pretty. And it will give me insight that I don't currently have right now. How can this not be good for me? She reasons. And so she rationalizes herself into this decision. In fact, if you want an interesting study this week in your quiet time, compare Genesis 3.6 with 1 John 2.16. You will have a you'll have a good time looking at those two verses and comparing them together. And they're listed there on your note page. That Eve was deceived into sinning against God is confirmed in the New Testament in a couple of different places on your note page. Paul is writing to the church family in Corinth, and at one point he's concerned for these Christians in Corinth, and here's what he says. I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, now Eve is certainly accountable for, to God for her decision, uh, for her sin, and, and she's going to experience the consequences. But her thoughts were not led, her, her thoughts were led astray by, by really by a cunning deception. And the New Testament affirms that. And I stress this with you this morning because the same cannot be said about Adam. He joins her at some point after her encounter with the serpent. And when she offers him fruit from this one forbidden tree, he takes it and he eats it. No deception, no no clever enticements or uh, uh, arguments offered by the serpent, he he walks wide-eyed into a blatant disobedience of what God, as his loving creator, has told him. He defies his God. 
Now, Eve often takes much of the heat for the fall, but in truth, God holds Adam, not Eve, ultimately responsible for the fall. He was not deceived. He was defiantly disobeying. He was by creative design to lovingly care for, protect, direct Eve, and he did not do that. He failed her. And maybe he determined that that he would put her before God in his life. Whatever his thinking was, here's what we read about him in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Sin came into the world, how? Through one man. And death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. What God said would happen is going to happen. And the lie that Satan told was a lie. You will surely die. That's exposed. The biggest lie in the history of the world. You will not die if you disobey your God. All of that then brings us, if you flip your note page over, to quickly consider the consequences of this fall. Let's pick up the story as God tells it, beginning at verse 7. And this is a rather lengthy section of reading, but it's the best way really to, to put all this in front of us in a, in a short way, short time. So, so allow me to do that for us. You follow along in your Bible. Here's what we read. The decision having been made, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? Now, church family, just let's stop for a second. This is not God being ignorant of where Adam and Eve are in the garden and saying, come out, come out, wherever you are. That's not, that's not this moment. This is God's way of bringing Adam and Eve out so that they can explain why they're hiding. That has never happened before in their relationship, ever. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Verse 11 He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to me, gave to me, be with me. She gave me fruit from the tree and I ate. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. And so in other words, there's just blame going all over the place, right? No ownership of the sin, but a lot of blame. Verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you should go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The woman's... To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed, and clothed them. And, and here, church family, this is, the, this is the very first record we have of the death of the innocent for the guilty. Innocent animals die because of the sin of Adam and Eve. And God makes coverings for them. And this is just a foreshadowing of another who will be innocent and die for the guilty, pointing towards Jesus. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim, which are angelic beings, and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I'm glad it stops there. <laughs> it just gets so heavy, doesn't it? To read this part of God's word. The devastating consequences of sin's entrance into the perfection of God's creation can scarcely be imagined by you and me. So on your note page, uh, I've, I've made a pitiful attempt to at least break out some of the repercussions of the fall. Not by any means an extensive listing there for us. The first consequence for Adam and Eve is that their sin brings about the loss of innocence in their lives. Instantly they know of their guilt and there is shame. They experience Shame. They've never done that before. They try to cover their shame in a woefully inadequate way with, with leaves, just as mankind to this very day tries to cover up the sin in his life by, by self-effort and, and good works and other things to hide who, who he really is. We're still doing the same thing. Adam and Eve and mankind lost the intimate, open, authentic, alive, real, loving relationship that they'd always known as image bearers with the Creator. Adam and Eve can no longer look at each other face to face and not notice that there's something wrong. They're unclothed and, and they dread facing God and they hide from Him. And that's because sin always separates it. It always creates distance. And this fall into sin clearly brings conflict into Adam and Eve's relationship. You know what? They had the only perfect marriage that has ever existed. You may have a great marriage, but it's not perfect, right? They had a perfect marriage. The only one in the history of the world. But now where there had once been harmony and perfect agreement and self-sacrificing love for one another, now there is blame now there is mistrust. Now there is self-will. Two sinners under the same roof now are going to be in conflict, right? 
Because that's just what goes with sin. It's part of the fall. There'll be pain in childbearing. That's another consequence. It will be a reminder to Eve and to all women that she gave sin entrance into the world by her choices, and she's passed that curse onto her children. And Adam, who is the caretaker of the garden before chapter 3, then he, ne- he barely had to turn a shovel and the earth would just explode with provision for him. Now he will sweat for his bread. His work that had brought him joy and had brought him satisfaction is going to fight him and reluctantly give up its resources to him. He'll fight for it all. Indeed, all of creation suffered terribly at the fall. Romans 8, 20 and 21 puts it this way. For the creation was subject to, what's the next word? Futility. Futility. That's part of the fall for the created world. But because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to, what's the word? Corruption. Corruption. Drought. Famine. Earthquakes. Wildfires. Disease. And on and on and on. That's the corruption of our world caused by the fall. And there is death. There is death. Death was something that Adam and Eve had never seen. They had never witnessed death. Which might explain why God said it the way he does in verse 19. Because they don't understand what death is. God says, you're going to return to the dirt. Well, they can understand that. You're going to return to the dirt. They might not have known death, but they can understand that. We know about death, don't we? We know about death. Death is all around us. We see it on the streets of Idlewild as we drive through town. We see all those poor squirrels, don't we? I mean, we they, they, they just didn't make it, right? And there are so many of them. We understand death. Adam and Eve didn't understand death. They didn't realize that death would would mean separation. It would would mean physical death, separation from this physical world when they turned back to the dust. but, But it's more than that. They didn't realize that it would mean spiritual death as sin separated them from God because sin always separates. And it, it could even mean eternal separation, a permanent separation from God, what the Bible calls the second death in Revelation 20. Devastating consequences for mankind, for creation, and for God. The loss of intimate, loving relationship with his image bearers. We've already mentioned that. There's going to be no more walks in the garden in the cool of the day, as verse 8 spoke of it. I mean, that's gone. That's gone for God. No more. In fact, as verse 24 tells us, God must actually banish mankind from the garden for his own protection for in the garden there was also a tree the tree of life and should his image bearers eat of the tree of life while they're in this sinful condition they would live forever with the curse of sin upon them and and so driving his image bearers from the garden was really an act of mercy it was an act of loving mercy but how very painful how very sad for God in fact Here's just a little window into the emotions that God would have been feeling. 
on the back side of the fall. This is found in Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's the fall. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So church family, this this second chapter of the story has brought us face to face with the fall and its terrible physical, spiritual, and potentially eternal consequences. And it leaves all of us fallen as we are, as descendants of Adam and Eve, it leaves us desperate. We have a great need because we're fallen, right? You do. I do. As a descendant of Adam and Eve, I have a desperate, desperate need. I need to be rescued. I need to be restored. The Apostle Paul, recognizing this in his own life, voiced what should be the cry of every sinner when he says in Romans 7, verse 24, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body of death? Is that not our cry? It should be our cry. Who indeed will rescue us. Now, in this little booklet that you have, and on about the the third page of it, where we read the fall, and there's that, that figure amidst kind of a bleak landscape, you'll see the word need near the bottom of that of that page. Here's what it says. When we think about the perfection and love that existed at the beginning of creation, we realize we are far more flawed, far more sinful than we can dare imagine. Just think of the grudges we've held and the lies we've told, the thoughts we'd never dare say aloud. An honest glance into our own hearts reveals the truth. We are all what? Guilty. Everyone has sinned. And the ultimate consequence, even worse than a physical death, is eternal separation from a loving God in terrible misery and unhappiness. Because of all this, we need to consider the question, can anything be done? Is there any hope? Yeah, yeah. Is there any hope, church? Yes. You know there is. And in fact, this hope is given to us in this very same chapter where the fall happens. Did you know that? The first Hint of hope is right here in this chapter, in chapter 3 and verse 15. God does not let this chapter end without including in it a promise, a promise to sinners. God says, verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, check that out, notice that, he, singular, shall bruise your head, talking to the serpent, and you shall bruise his heel. Believe it or not, this is the Bible's very first hint of the coming of Jesus, isn't it? The very first hint that a descendant of Eve will come and deliver a blow to Satan that will destroy him. 
because we've read ahead in the story, we know that this is Jesus. It's why there's going to be a Christmas. It's because we needed a Savior. We needed one to deliver the death blow that we could never deliver. And only a loving, gracious, and forgiving Creator God would not allow this chapter or the fall to end without the promise of hope. His name is Jesus. He's the main character in the third chapter of the story, which we will share on Christmas Eve, Christmas Eve morning, two weeks from now. Next Sunday we'll be at Camp Maranatha, and then, Lord willing, we'll resume the story. And I can't think of a better day for us to talk about the rescue than on Christmas Eve. Hope you can join us for that. Let's pray together, church. Oh, this has been a hard morning, Heavenly Father. It's, 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 it's heavy to, to walk through the details of the fall and, and to know we're part of that story. And, and here this, this, this morning, we're not blaming Adam and Eve because we would have done exactly what they did. In fact, we, we were represented by them. So their choices are really our choices. Their sin is our sin. We thank you for being honest with us. We are so, so saddened when we read this story and realize all the consequences that have come from our choice. Our choice to try to live without you or to try to be you, whatever that is. We're so sorry. We're we're thankful, though, that you did not end this chapter without giving us hope and giving us a promise. And we look forward to Jesus and talking about him and celebrating him. So, Lord, here we have it. We have a little booklet in our hands. We have the story to share with a friend. May you, by your grace and your kindness, take us to a friend or a family member this week and and allow us to hand off the story that others might know you, acknowledge their sin, and fall in love deeply with you through Jesus. To that end, we ask it in Jesus' strong name and all God's people said, amen and amen.